You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 17 this morning. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Heavenly Father, Lord, if we are to profit from this text, as we do expect to do, we know that we will only profit as you, O Father, work in our hearts by way of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would be pleased, O Lord, to freshen our hearts, O Lord, to dispatch your Holy Spirit, that he, O Lord, would open our hearts to this passage, open this passage to our hearts. O Father, strengthen our faith, deepen our faith, strengthen, O Lord, our sense of adoration of you. O Father, help us to examine our hearts in the midst of this text. Oh, Father, we look to you, O oh Lord, that you would do this work and do it in abundance. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Well, being that it's been a few weeks since we've been in John's gospel, and it's always a good idea to remind ourselves of where we've been, our minds as a result of the fall are such that they do forget, right? And it's been a while since we've been in John's gospel So I I turn your attention back to verse 43 of chapter 4. You may recall last time, uh, there's where we picked up, and there we found Jesus departing from Samaria and headed to Galilee. In verse 45, he comes into Galilee, and there the Galileans welcome him, having seen that all he had done in Jerusalem. Now, you'll recall that I I made a connection there, and I think it's it's a very obvious connection that John is making uh, there back to chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. And I make reference to that passage 
uh, often in hopes that as soon as you hear 2, 23, 24, you'll recognize, ah, 2, 23, and 24. That's where Jesus is in Jerusalem at the first Passover, and there he is performing many signs during that event, and people believed him because they saw the signs. But yet he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them, right? Does that bring back uh, memories? Now, the reason Jesus didn't entrust himself to them is because he realized that there was, their faith was spurious. Their faith was faulty. Their faith was um, in need of strengthening. Their, their faith was deficient. We could put it uh, many, many ways. They saw the signs, and as a result of the signs, uh, they believed. And when we come to verse 46, Jesus comes into Galilee where he had made water into wine. And at Capernaum, there's an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. Well, guess what? Our minds are being called back there again, isn't it? Back to chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. And what we have here is a representative of this group of people who in Jerusalem saw Jesus performing the signs and believed because they saw the signs. And Jesus says, listen, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Now, this man whose um, father or whose son actually is a father whose son is on his deathbed, this man hears that Jesus has come into town, so he rushes to Jesus in order to get Jesus to come to the side of his uh, the bedside of his son. We can certainly relate with that. And um, last time we were looking at this man, we were looking at his faith, we were seeing it was deficient in many ways, not to throw stones at him because who wouldn't? Um, we recognize our faith this morning is deficient in many ways. That's what we come here. We come here with hopes this morning of our, of our faith being strengthened, do we not? That's one of the reasons why we come to the table for our faith to be strengthened. We're not throwing stones. We're just merely observing what the text is pointing out to us. First, he believed that Jesus had to come to the side of his son in order for his son to be healed. Secondly, he believed that Jesus needed to get there before he died, before him to be healed. Now, why wouldn't he believe these things? But his faith is deficient because in believing these things, he is making Jesus much smaller than he really is, isn't he? And, of course, that's what we do, isn't it? We make Jesus really like a super one of us, don't we, so often of the time. We need, a, we, need a, a, we need a bigger view of Jesus, and that is, of course, what Jesus is about to give him. But notice how Jesus handles him. He handles him so masterfully as we would expect. Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, verse 48. Verse 49, the official said, sir, come down before my child dies, and Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is giving him a word. And that's what I pointed out a few weeks ago. He is giving him a word. And if you look at verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke. And that's what's so very, very important. What changes us? Is it, is it witnessing miracles? Is that what changes us? What changes us primarily is the Holy Spirit working through God's Word. That's what changes us. How do we grow in the faith? We grow in the faith as we come to God's Word. We don't grow in the faith chasing miracles. 
In fact, we have all the miracles we need recorded for us in the Word of God. Uh, these things were done. These things were miracles. Uh, never once is Jesus uh, accused of being a false miracle worker. It is recognized by his fiercest adversaries that he does many signs and wonders. He does many signs and wonders. And the point here is Jesus gives him a word. He gives him his word, the word of Christ. Go, your son will live. He is given a promise. And the man receives the word from Christ, and he goes, just as he's being commanded to go. And on his way back home, his servants come out to meet him, and they say, listen, good news, the best of news we could expect. Your son is recovering. And he says, what time, by chance, what time, uh, by the way, did he start to recover? And he said, it's the seventh hour. And we can imagine what this man experienced in that moment, because he recognized that it was exactly the seventh hour when Jesus says, go, your son will live. And what is the result of that? The result of that is true saving faith. Because we're told that not only did he believe himself, but verse 53, all his household. All his household. Uh, this is an important issue because spurious faith, false faith, uh, is a problem in every generation of the church. Read the history books. You'll see it's a problem with every generation of the church. Even as we speak today, there are many men and women who are walking around believing that they believe, when in reality their faith is nothing more than mental assent. It's a problem. So we need to examine ourselves. And someone say, well, how, how do we do that? Has your faith produced commitment to Christ? Has your faith produced hatred of sin? Has your faith produced love for the church? These are things that John brings out in his first letter as marks of a person who has been brought from death to life. In other words, a person who has been brought uh, from uh, unbelief uh, to belief. And this sets us up for our text this morning. We're told that after this, verse, five, or verse 1 of chapter 5, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. We're not told what feast it is. There's been a lot of ink spilled over trying to determine what, fe what feast it is. We don't need to know what feast it is in order to interpret the passage, uh, and that is a blessing because people are divided. There are three major feasts that it uh, probably could be, uh, Passover, uh, uh, you'd have um, uh, Pentecost, you'd have uh, Feast of Tabernacles, uh, probably one of those three. We don't know which one. What we do know is that it brought Jesus back to Jerusalem. And in verse 2, there we see that in Jerusalem, by what is called the Sheep Gate, um, we could learn about the sheep gate a little bit in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, where we see as they're rebuilding the, uh, the, the second temple there, they, uh, they, they repair the, the sheep gate. Presumably, it's the gate where the, the sacrificial sheep were brought into the city. It was on the northern end uh, of uh, town, if you will. And by this sheep gate, there's a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy, if you will. And we're told that there are five porches or five roofed colonnades. Uh, verse 3, we're told that there were a multitude, that is many uh, invalids who were blind, lame, and paralyzed all gathered in this place. Verse 5, one man who was there had been invalid for 38 years. In verse 6, Jesus approaches him 
And he knew that he had been there for a long time. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? This kind of reminds us of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman, how he breaks the uh, silence with the Samaritan woman, you know, give me a drink. Um, And here he's breaking the silence with this man, asking him, do you Do you want to be healed? Notice verse 6, or I'm sorry, verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. What in the world is that all about? Um, Well, look at verse 4. Everybody find verse 4? Dustin's smiling. Dustin's laughing. You're the first head up, Dustin. <laughs> Dustin went, mm, and it's just it's this big grin on his face. He says, I ain't got verse four. <laughs> you notice verse four is missing, unless you have a King James translation. Verse four is missing. But um, most of your Bibles probably have a footnote. Am I correct? I didn't look to see if the NIV has a footnote. It has a footnote. If you follow it down to the footnote, it'll say something like uh, some manuscripts, and then it'll say insert or some manuscripts, uh, read, uh, holy or in part, quote, waiting uh, for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season to the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in front after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Uh, That kind of explains verse 7, doesn't it? Now, why is this verse at the bottom? Um, You'll see there it says some manuscripts in the ESV. Um, I can remember in seminary, uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't get into a whole lot of what we call textual criticism, but I can remember it being brought up in seminary, and I can remember being very curious about it uh, when it was being brought up. And I had it on my list of things, you know. I can remember being in New Testament, some of my New Testament courses, and I'm thinking, you know, I want to research this. I want to research this. Well, fact of the matter is, when I was going to seminary, I was working two part-time jobs while I was going to seminary. And given the reading, given the, the writing that you've got to do, given the midterms and the, the tests, those to-do lists were nothing but wishful thinking. Uh, I, never, I never really got to that. But what I was often hearing, and not so much from my seminary professors, they were fine, fine scholars, um, but what you'll generally hear is something like this. The oldest and best manuscripts do not contain these verses. How many have heard that before? Things to that nature. Okay, um, I want to speak to that for a minute because I will tell you, before I started studying John and, and preparation for this series, I actually spent time in what we call textual criticism in John, because it's going to come up again. This is going to come up a few times and very significantly at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. And I've always had a little bit of a problem with the phrase, the blanket phrase, the older and best manuscripts do not contain these verses. And I will tell you why. It's a judgment call on behalf of the textual critic. There are other explanations. For one, let's just reason with me for a moment. And is everybody on board with this? Everybody understand that we have all of these old manuscripts, if you will, cataloged into existence, and our, our scriptures, okay, are translated from these manuscripts, right? Everybody okay with that? Um, and 
Oftentimes, it'll go, the oldest and best manuscripts do not contain these verses. Um, okay, does that necessarily mean that these verses were not part of the original? A lot of times, we don't think about that. We reason this way, that the oldest manuscript is the closest manuscript to the original text and therefore is probably more original than the later manuscript. Now, that sounds reasonable if we take theology out of the, prog- out of the program. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, verse 8, there's a phrase that I so love about that chapter. In fact, it's one of my favorite phrases in that entire chapter. And the phrase goes like this, regarding the Word of God, that we believe it has been kept pure in all ages. Now, I have a deep conviction to that theological statement. What that means is, and what we are affirming by that statement, is that the Word of God is inspired by God. In other words, the writers, they write as they're being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And not only has the Word of God been inspired by God, but it's also been preserved by God in such a way that every generation has had a Bible. And there is another explanation for some of these verses. If we say that the older manuscripts do not have them, here's an explanation. The older manuscripts may have survived for the simple fact that they were faulty and they weren't being used. Now, you see, that requires a judgment call on behalf of the textual critic as well. And what I want you to understand is these are textual calls on behalf of a group of folks known as textual critics. Now, one of the things that I am concerned about, especially with modern textual criticism, is that it is very influenced by what we call modernism. And I'm using this particular opportunity to show what I'm talking about. If we look at verse 4, and you look, and many of you will be looking, unless you have a King James translation, you're looking at your your, uh, margin, and there you see holy in part, quote, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down to a, at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. What is that saying? That is saying that these invalids are gathered here at this place because occasionally the water is stirred. Something happens to the water. It's agitated in some way. And that it is believed that the first person into the water as the water is agitated is healed of his disease. Now, there's a lot of people that look at that verse and say, this is nothing more but superstition. They were superstitious. They're all gathered around, and superstitiously they believed when this water is stirred up, um, they believe an angel is stirring it up, and it's all superstition. There's a natural cause for it, possibly springs that ran into the water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that may be the case. I don't want to argue forcefully that that isn't the case because at the end of the day, I don't really know. But one thing I do want to say is I smell modernism in that. I smell modernism in that because there are some other writers who I so greatly respect who didn't take that position at all and not that long ago, one of whom is J.C. Ryle. 
who passed away in 1900. He embraced verse 4. He embraced verse 4, and he embraced what was written in verse 4, and even argued, listen, fellas, because modernism is coming in strong. It's coming in as a wave during that period of time. He's probably, J.C. Ryle's probably writing in the 1870s. And modernism is coming in strong during that time. And he's saying to his contemporaries, listen, everyone, I mean, we believe in other miracles in the Scriptures. Why don't we believe this? And let's think about it. We believe that an, that an axe head floated on the water. We believe that Elijah took his cloak and parted the water and walked on, uh, across the, the water. We, we believe that a donkey spoke. We believe in all kinds of things. Why couldn't we believe that God had sent an angel to stir the waters and the first person in is healed? Is, do we necessarily have to take that as some kind of superstitious nonsense? It may have been superstition. I'm not arguing that it isn't, but I'm saying let's open our minds. Now, another writer who I respect, Rolock, Robert Rolock, back in the 1600s, he maintained that this was an act of God's kindness and grace, that he actually did dispatch an angel to stir these waters, and he had done it because prophetic voice had gone silent for so many years, and we hold that God's prophetic voice had went silent with the writing of Malachi's prophecy. So for the last 400 years or so, God has largely been prophetically silent. And this was just a reminder that God's grace is still around. Now, as Robert Rolock, are we going to charge him with superstition? Are we going to charge J.C. Ryle with superstition? No, I'm not going to. Uh, no way. Uh, no way. These were exceptional biblical scholars and exceptional men of God. So um, what do we do with verse 4? I think that verse 7, we have verse 7, and it is not contested as having any kind of technical or textual problems. And in verse 7, the man says, listen, Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed. And he says, I don't have anyone to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up while I'm going another steps down before me. Now, why does he believe that? Because someone has probably told him that. Now, why did that someone tell him that? I'm going to conjecture because somebody somewhere along the line saw uh, an invalid or someone who's paralytic being lowered into the waters and came out whole. That's what I'm going to conjecture has happened. And that's where this belief has been established. Now, whether that's superstition, some, some have actually said, some have actually said that the, something was causing the water to be agitated. And that, of course, anyone getting into the agitated water is going to have some kind of uh, therapeutic benefit from being in the water. And, you know, I, the first time I read that, I thought to myself, okay, so what you're saying is we got an ancient hot tub here. Now, if you lower an invalid into a hot tub, they're not going to come out walking. It's possible they may feel better, but we're told that they'd be healed. They believe that they would be healed. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He says, there's no one to put me into the water. Now, before I move on, I want to say one thing, because every time we talk, every time I mention textual criticism, I don't want to rock anybody's um, confidence in the Word of God. I don't want anybody to leave here thinking, whoa, wait a second, textual criticism. Can I, what, you know, what about verse 7? What about verse 8? What about all this? A good Bible is going to point out the major textual variance to you. I spent three hours standing here one Saturday morning uh, lecturing on this. Some of you were there. You remember, I spent three hours talking about this very issue. 
And the, the, you can go through the Bible, you can go through all the margin notes. If you have an ESV, for example, you can just go through the Bible and just look at all of the textual variants, if you will. The major ones are mentioned. Uh, the ones that are worth mentioning are mentioned. And what you'll discover is that no major Christian doctrine is compromised by any of the textual variants, including this one. Praise God. And I can tell you, the more that you study things like that, that will not, that will not cripple your confidence in Scripture. It'll actually strengthen it. Trust me on that one. And I'm sharing it with you because I don't want someone to say, hey, you know, you can't believe your Bible. There's hundreds of thousands of errors in it. Most of those errors actually are text, they're simply spelling differences. Spelling differences. Skeptics are trying to fill our heads with that nonsense all the time. They don't want to believe the Bible because they don't want to give up their sins that they love. That's the bottom line. It's a theological issue. And it's a moral one, actually. It's a moral issue. It's immoral to disbelieve God's holy word. It's an immoral act. It's a sin to disbelieve what we have before us. God has not only inspired his word, he has kept it pure. He has preserved it for every age. The King James translators, they were aware of textual problems. And sometimes it's said, one more comment about that and I'll move on because I'm digressing a bit. But it's often said that during the uh, translation of the King James Bible, there are only eight or ten manuscripts uh, but now we have all these other manuscripts, and uh, sometimes that's, that we'll hear that if you, if, you, if you study those kinds of things. Let me speak to that very briefly. Um, the manuscripts that the King James translators were working with were the manuscripts that were in use. And there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's something to that. You see, if, if we think about this, God's Word has been inspired. God's Word has been preserved. Now, these manuscripts... Some of them came from the East. The church in the East, the Eastern, what we call today the Eastern Orthodox Church, continued to use Greek. They use Greek to this day. They continued to use it. And as Muslims persecuted the Eastern Orthodox Church, they moved into Europe. And when they come into Europe, guess what they brought with them? They brought their manuscripts with them, which then became available to the Reformers. So these, my point is, these were, this was the text that was in use. The text kept, and I would submit, the text kept pure uh, for all ages. I'm taking a minority view within the Reformed community on this, but I'm happy to take it uh, because this is where my conscience uh, directs me. Uh, so I don't know. I'm not going to be so quick to dismiss verse 4 is what I'm saying. I can't tell you that for sure, thus saith the Lord, it's in the, it's in the text, but I can't say that it isn't either. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but at any rate, back to our text here. Jesus, Jesus asks this man, he says, do you want to be healed in verse 6? The man says, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm going, another steps down before me. And look what Jesus says to him in verse 8. Get up, take your bed, and walk. Tells him to do three things. Get up. He hasn't done that in 38 years. Don't just get up. Pick up your bed. And don't just pick it up. Walk. And that's what he does. And what's the point of all that? 
The point of that, there's, there's several things here. One is to show that this healing is instantaneous and it is complete. It's instantaneous and it's complete. And the fact that Jesus chose an invalid that had been invalid for 38 years, what does that tell us? How has this invalid made his living for the last 38 years? Has home health care been coming to the pool of Bethesda and taking care of him? No, there is no home health care. He has made his living begging, and he has made his living by acts of charity and almsgiving from people uh, of the community. And, and all that is to say they knew this guy. They would all know this guy because he's the guy that they, you know, they probably took food to. He's the guy they probably gave some money to. He's the guy been, that the community has been supporting. And now this guy's walking around carrying his mat. That would be extraordinary, would it not? He's walking around carrying his mat. Now, this would be a wonderful story. Verse 9, at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Uh, if the story ended right there, we'd say, this is an absolutely wonderful story. And if it ended there, we might say, you know, um, the subject of this story is Jesus, Jesus, you know, divine work and healing this man instantaneously. But that's not where the story ends, is it? It's actually in many ways where the story begins. If you look at the end of verse 9, now that day was the Sabbath. Okay, what is the significance of that? Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed and walk. <laughs> Some of you, do you feel the gravity and force of that? The man answers in verse 11, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, I think the logic here, and many of the commentaries point out the logic here is, listen, if he's got the authority to heal me, I better obey his authority when he tells me to pick up my mat and walk. <laughs> Whoa. Verse number 12, they ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, in verse 13, we're told that he didn't know. The man who had been healed didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus makes one of his withdrawals where he just disappears into the crowd. He does that from time to time, doesn't he? No one took Jesus' life away from him. He gave it down. He laid it down on his own. Now, um, in verse 14, afterwards, Jesus finds this man in the temple, and he said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Let's stop for a minute on this verse because this verse is really curious, isn't it? Notice what's said there. See your well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, what's so curious about that verse? Well, in chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples will encounter a blind, a blind man. And one of the disciples basically asked Jesus, and they say, who, who, was, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? And Jesus answers, neither. And one of the lessons we get from that is that it's not a good practice to go around, and when we see the misfortune of others, or we see the sinful, or we see the, the, the suffering of other people, disease, what have you, 
to begin thinking, okay, they must have committed some particular sin that had brought that particular tragedy into their lives. That's not a good practice. The fact is we don't know. And in fact, in generally speaking, I mean, tragedy has come into our lives because of sin, yes. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that particular tragedy or particular suffering comes into our lives because of some particular sin that we have or someone close to us has committed. Now, that having been said, it doesn't mean that it don't either. Because sometimes particular sin does indeed bring particular suffering. And that seems to be the natural reading of this verse here. Jesus says to him, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. We don't have to put that construction on it, I don't think. I don't think we have to. But I think that's the most natural reading of the text. I think it's the most natural reading. But besides that, we're going to be coming to the table here very shortly and I offer a warning every time we do, don't I? And what is the warning? Let us examine ourselves to be sure that we're not partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, right? And we do that because the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians who were doing just that. They were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And Paul goes on to tell them that is why some of you are ill and some have even died. So there you see a particular sin was committed, partaking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and a particular um, consequence resulted from that sin by the judgment hand of God, namely, uh, they fell ill or they even passed away. And we have other examples. Ananias and Sapphira would be another example of that uh, in Acts chapter 5. Uh, and you can look at that at your leisure. We were looking at that Wednesday night. Uh, so uh, that's the uh, amazing thing here about verse 14. Jesus is telling him, see, okay, now you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And verse 15, the man does something that's very puzzling here. He went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. I don't know exactly what to make of that. I mean, I, I know what to make of it, but I think, it, again, this could go, it could go either way. I mean, maybe the man is just responding because his elders are asking him, his leaders are asking him to tell him who it was who healed him, and he's merely um, responding. Some have said he's responding to see that praise is given to Jesus. Uh, but others have said, you know, he seems to be betraying Jesus at this point because it has to be obvious that they have ill intent for Jesus. I mean, I think there's some truth to that. Because wouldn't you, if you had been an invalid for 38 years and here you are carrying your, here you are carrying your mat, you're walking, you're whole, you've got the strength. I mean, these atrophied muscles, you know, if we're on our backs just for a week, what happens to us? Uh, let alone if with 38 years, there would be no muscle. I mean, and here he is able to walk around carrying his mat and all they got to say to him is he's breaking the Sabbath. I would think he'd think there's something really odd about this. And then they want to know who it was who healed him. I think he would think, oh, there's something wrong about this. So then you've got to wonder, why would he go and tell them that it was Jesus? Why would he do that? Well, um, I, I don't know. Uh, D.A. Carson in his commentary says we shouldn't see this as treacherousness but dullness. I don't know the answer to that. I throw that out there. Um, because of that, I don't want to make 
I don't want to make a leading application of this, as others have done. Some make a, a real leading application of this. I think that could go, uh, I think that could go either way. Uh, and I don't think that's the leading application here anyway. When we're studying the Scriptures, you know, I heard Alistair Begg say many, many years ago, keep the plain things the main things. And that's, that's very good advice. I don't know who he stole that from, but I stole that from him. So um, that's keep the, and when you hear me say that, that's where I first heard that. Keep the uh, plain things the main things. What are the plain things? The issue is the Sabbath, isn't it? That is very clear. Verse 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus says something that might make you scratch your head, but it's brilliant. It's actually, verse 17 is brilliant. It's truly brilliant. Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, they're charging Jesus of a crime. What is the crime? It's Sabbath breaking because he's healing the man on the Sabbath and he's charging him to carry his mat around. And according to these Jewish authorities, this is Sabbath breaking. But is it Sabbath breaking according to the word of God? The answer is no. According to the word of God, they were to abstain on the seventh day. They were to abstain on the Sabbath day from working. Six days you shall labor. The seventh day is a day of rest. On it you shall do no work. And what they would get around and discuss is, okay, let's define work. What is a work? And they come up with all these categories. Scholars tell us 39 categories of what constituted a work. When I think the plain thing is, okay, if you're a plumber, knock it off on the Sabbath day. You got six days to be a plumber on the Sabbath day. Keep your tools in the truck. That doesn't mean you can't come to somebody in need in an emergency. Works of mercy and necessity were always lawful on the Sabbath day. But out make, making money, just out common, ordinary business, that is what's in view uh, on, the, on the Sabbath day. And what is this man supposed to do? What would these Jewish authorities have him to do? Continue to lay there until Sunday, then pick up his mat and walk? He had been commanded by God to pick up his mat and walk because when Jesus told him to pick up his mat and walk, God told him to pick up his mat and walk. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Should he have just got up and left his mat there? Because I am thinking the very first thing he probably should do is go get him a good bath. And I'm not trying to be funny here, but let's think about it. He's invalid. What do you suppose the very first thing that probably the very first order of business would be after praising God, get a bath? Now, should he leave his mat behind while he goes and get a bath? Should he leave his mat to be there until the next day? Would that mat be there the next day? This mat is probably the very only thing this man owns. And we can think of the cruelty of leaving him lay there for, what, another 10 hours, another 12 hours, however long it was so that he could obey this man-made rule. Jesus is being charged of a crime here, but what's going on here is Jesus is exposing a crime. That's the meaning of this text. Jesus, while Jesus, that's the irony of this. While Jesus is being 
accused of a crime, he's exposing what? My father is working until now, and I am working. Oh, Jesus, what are you doing? I'm exposing a crime. What is the crime? Heartless religion. That's the crime. Heartless, lifeless, Christless religion. Because they loved their man-made laws more than they loved this man and more than they loved God himself. Now, that's something that's pretty easy to fall into. It's something that's pretty easy to fall into. And the reason for that is because our natural hostility towards Christ runs way deeper than we realize. In our sins, our natural hostility towards Jesus is so deep that we, within our own strength and power, are unable to break ourselves free of it. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts in order to break us free, in order to embrace Christ with love. That cannot happen without God's work. An angel can't do it. We can't do it. Only God can do it. It runs that deep. The good news is the grace of Christ runs deeper than that natural hostility. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here this morning, would we? We would still be in our sins. We'd be very religious. We'd be very religious. There's not a human being who is not very religious. We'd be serving something this morning, but it wouldn't be Christ. It wouldn't be God through Christ. And as we make application here this morning, let us examine our hearts this morning. I don't think I need to spend much time on it, but I think it's, we just have to ask ourselves a few questions. Do we love our tradition more than we love Jesus? Do we love our tradition more than we love God through Jesus? Do we love our tradition more than we love people? Do we love theology more than we love Jesus? That's a question that's, I used to ask that question a lot at seminary when I'd be invited to speak there at the chapel, right? I don't, I haven't gotten any invitations to speak there in a long, long time because I was unable to continue, but I used to speak there after graduation. I, I usually speak there at least once a year, twice a year. Um, and that was a question I would often ask when I was speaking there. Um, do we love theology more than we love Jesus? Why? Because there's a group of people that love theology. I'll tell you what. That's why they're there. I, I was one of them. As being an alumni of that seminary, I love theology. The question we have to ask, do we love theology more than we love Jesus? And why would I ask a question like that? Because it's possible to love theology in a sinful way. We could love theology because we love being right and showing other people that they're wrong. Do you see that? Oh, that's really actually quite common. And it's quite common in our circles, unfortunately. Um, do we love theology more than we love people? That often is revealed by the way we treat people who disagree with us, isn't it? How do we treat the person who disagrees with us? That reveals our heart towards that person, doesn't it? You know, we have to guard our hearts because I'll tell you, church life is like this. Our hearts are so desperately sick, and even after they're redeemed by God's grace, there's a powerful remnant of sin that dwells in our hearts, and we are so far from the mark that we could find ourselves being the first one here every Sunday, never missing a Sunday, never missing a Bible study, when all while we love our favorite seat in this congregation more than we love the visitor who would come up the steps. 
Our hearts are in that kind of shape, aren't they? This text is pointing that out to us. What are you doing carrying your mat? It's the Sabbath. J.C. Ryle, a writer that I so greatly admire, he so skillfully wrote these words in regard to verse 12. He said, quote, they cared not for knowing what they might admire as a work of mercy, but what they might make the ground of accusation. In other words, they didn't care about the wonder of the fact that this man who was invalid for 38 years and had very little hope that he was ever going to be anything else. They had very little care about that, but they were deeply, they, what they deeply concerned themselves with was ground for accusing him. That's a critical spirit. That's a spirit that sees faults in other people and likes to hone in on faults of other people. Listen, that is satanic. And we're guilty of that, aren't we? We all do that from time to time, don't we? Some of us are going to be more guilty of it than others. We're not equally guilty, but we're guilty of it. And it's satanic. One of the, one of the chief and principal words for the evil one is the accuser. You can think of Zechariah chapter 3, where, where the evil one accuses Zechariah. He's in his filthy rags, and he accuses Zechariah. He makes his accusations, and he is scolded for it. Now, why do you accuse him who has been plucked out of the fire? And he has given uh, fresh garments, pure vestments, if you will, put on. And that's an imagery. That's an imagery of what we received the moment. Listen, the moment we put our faith and trust in Christ Jesus, those filthy rags, they're gone. They go to Christ Jesus. And guess what? That pure vestment, which is emblematic of his holy perfection, is imputed or accounted or credited to our account. In other words, we could put it this way. We are clothed in his perfection. Clothed in his perfection. I can't do any better than that this morning, so I'm going to close. How's that sound? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we so thank you for your word, which cuts our hearts, Father. And we thank you that it cuts our hearts, for you're a surgeon. You must use the scalpel. And we recognize that there's no incision that you would make, Father, that is not meant for healing. And if we find ourselves cut this morning, Lord, we thank you. And we praise you, O Lord. We thank you, O Lord, that you love us enough to perform the spiritual surgery in our hearts we thank you, O Lord, that you love us enough to give us the word, that through your word, by working of your Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts and our lives. And Father, we thank you, for we see the real meaning of this passage this morning. That's the healing of this man. You could have, you could have chosen to heal him on a, on a Friday or on a Sunday or on a Monday, but you chose to heal him on a Sunday for the very reason, realizing you'd be charged with the crime of of breaking their man-made rules, but, in the, but you're working. Oh, Lord, you were working just as the Father is working. You were working to expose the crime of heartless and Christless and lifeless man-made religion. And, oh, Lord, we thank you. Fill us, oh, Father, with the real deal. Fill us this morning, oh, Lord, by way of your Holy Spirit, that, oh, Lord, we would be filled afresh this morning 
with the love and the faith and repentance that all comes from the hands of the Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen and amen.